Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes, and their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do, but getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations are endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. And with more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash tax notes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, back in Blacklist. On October 3rd, a consortium of international journalists published the first in a collection of articles based on leaked information that had been dubbed the Pandora Papers. These documents reportedly show how the world's rich, famous, and powerful use tax havens to obscure their assets and potentially avoid paying tax in their home countries. While we've seen similar releases before, like the Panama Papers in 2016 and the Paradise Papers in 2017, the Pandora Papers connect twice as many politicians and public figures to offshore activity, bringing on new and heightened calls for a crackdown on tax havens. Against this backdrop, the EU is having its own reckoning on tax havens. Its tax havens blacklist is facing increasing criticism and calls for reform. So how are countries reacting to the Pandora Papers? And can we expect the EU blacklist to be reformed? Here to talk more about this is Tax Notes reporter Sarah Piaz. Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So let's start from the beginning. What are we talking about when we say tax haven? Sure. So a tax haven is generally accepted to be a jurisdiction that will offer foreign companies or individuals little to no tax liability for their bank deposits. They may also offer a lack of transparency in beneficial ownership of a company or any other amount of special economic or tax regimes. So tax havens seem to play a big role in the findings of the Pandora Papers. How are countries reacting to those findings? Well, it's been a pretty large reaction, and the reaction has been, you know, some of outrage, and it's been kind of across the board. So, for example, in the European Parliament, there was a huge discussion during the plenary debate among members of European Parliament about, you know, the need to sort of crack down on what they're calling these legal loopholes that were revealed in the Pandora Papers to sort of legislate them out of existence. But beyond the EU, you know, there have been responses from the Czech police and the Czech Republic, basically saying that they're going to investigate, you know, any and all allegations in the Pandora Papers. And and that's also, you know, including their own prime minister, Andre Babis. And then in terms of other countries, there's been the Australian tax authorities, the Pakistani government have all come out and said that they would investigate the findings in the Pandora Papers. So it's really been a pretty large response globally. You mentioned the EU and they have this tax haven blacklist. You recently did a deep dive on the blacklist. So could you start off with some background on what is the EU blacklist and what purpose does it serve? 
Sure. So the EU tax haven blacklist, which its long name is known as the EU list of non-cooperative jurisdictions in tax, is basically a soft law tool that the EU uses to name and shame non-EU jurisdictions with laws and policies that facilitate tax avoidance. And the EU blacklist is administered by the Code of Conduct Group, which is run through the EU Council. And so that's the body that basically approves and coordinates EU legislation. How are countries added to the blacklist? Well, it's a bit of a secretive process. So the Code of Conduct Group meets, and they typically meet in secret, They don't usually share the minutes of their meetings until well after those meetings have occurred. And they basically decide which countries, you know, that they've screened meet the criteria laid out in the Code of Conduct Group's blacklist criteria. What countries are currently on the list? So the current list, which was just adopted by the council on October 5th, includes American Samoa, Fiji, Guam, Palau, Panama, Samoa, Trinidad and Tobago, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Vanuatu. In this version of the list, Anguilla, Dominica, and the Seychelles were actually removed and they were put on the gray list, which comprises jurisdictions that are subject to increased supervision and progress review by the council. So as we've read in some of the Pandora Papers articles published in the last week, South Dakota came up as a tax haven jurisdiction. So no part of the U.S. ended up on that list? Well, the short answer would be no, although if you wanted to split hairs, I guess you could point out that three U.S. territories made it on the list, American Samoa, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. But you're correct. South Dakota, which has been exposed as a tax haven, and also Delaware, no, they were not on the list. Now, I understand there is also some controversy over the countries that did end up on the list. Could you give us some insight there? Sure. There are many number of controversies that have come up around the countries that are on the list. Some criticisms, and these are from lawmakers, tax observers, you know, general observers, say that the list doesn't go far enough, that it doesn't list enough countries. But others have come out and said that the list is unfair to a specific type of non-EU country, namely small island nations, You know, even a person I talked to in the article that just came out, he gave some criticism about how it's majority Black countries that are often on these lists. So there's a lot of controversy about both how the list does not go far enough, but also how it maybe goes too far in the wrong direction. Also, many of these countries that appear on the blacklist are low-income countries. You know, many of them don't have the resources to implement a lot of the changes that the EU would like to see. And a lot of these changes are set by the OECD standards for its global forum. And, you know, OECD countries are often more wealthy nations. They're often more connected nations, members of the G7, members of the G20. And as you can see, The countries on this list, many of them are not members of the OECD. They're not members of the inclusive framework. So there's been very valid criticisms from observers that are saying that this is just not fair because these countries are being judged against a standard that they didn't set up, that they didn't create. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Tax automation software is transforming the accounting profession. Support remote client relationships, enable collaboration, and reduce firm frustration. Experience the power of the SafeSend suite 
and improve your firm's process for client communication across the entire tax engagement. Schedule a demo at safesend.com to see it in action. That's safesend.com. So let's talk a bit more about the criticism that this list is not doing what it needs to do to stop tax avoidance and evasion. What are people saying about that? Sure. So I think probably the best example to sort of show that encapsulates this assertion that the blacklist doesn't go far enough, that it doesn't capture the countries that it should, is the case of Turkey. So Turkey was not included in the blacklist. And the reason that that's notable is, you know, in February of 2021 this year, the council had asked Turkey to make a high level political commitment by May 31st to activate automatic exchange of information relationships for tax information with six member states that it didn't currently have those relationships with. So that was Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, France, Germany, and the Netherlands, and it needed to do so by June 30th. It also asked Turkey to send all member states information for fiscal year 2019 by September 1st, and to send information for fiscal year 2020 and 2021 by September 30th of this year, and then September 30th of next year, you know, just to keep up with these automatic exchange of information schedules. So Turkey did, in fact, you know, activate its exchange of information relationships by June 30th, but it didn't do it with all member states. It did it with 26 member states, save for Cyprus, which Turkey does not have diplomatic relationship with. And that basically violates the EU criteria, and that would effectively land Turkey on the blacklist, but it didn't. And so there were a lot of lawmakers, observers, people who are watching this happen, who were pretty unhappy about that and really wondering why exactly Turkey was spared from the blacklist, but not all of these other countries that ended up on the blacklist. Now, since everything is political at some level, how does politics factor into the blacklist? Great question. So politics is really the foundation of this blacklist. And although we can't always say for certain because we're not in the room where all of these discussions happen, what I can say is that plenty of people have gone on record to say that keeping Turkey off the blacklist was absolutely a political move, given the political context of what's going on between Turkey and the EU. So You know, the council's concessions for Turkey have come amid major political tensions between Turkey and the EU and its allies. So, for example, you know, the United States issued sanctions against Turkey in December of 2020 over its July 2019 purchase of an S-400 air defense system from Russia. And also, in the meantime, EU member states, Cyprus and Greece, have been locked in a years-long disagreement with Turkey over eastern Mediterranean maritime boundaries and energy resources. So there was a lot of political turmoil going on. Also, a lawmaker mentioned to me that the refugee crisis happening with Turkey is also being used as sort of a political manipulation tool to get the EU to, you know, not make sanctions or any sort of penalties against Turkey. So that definitely factored into that decision. But then there's also other examples of, you know, the EU leaving certain countries off the list for political reasons, such as 
the United States and several of its own states being left off the list. So, you know, some EU sources told us that, you know, the EU really wants to preserve its relationship with the U.S. And so it really doesn't push against the fact that the U.S. does not share as much tax information with the EU as the EU shares with the U.S. under the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. You know, that act obliges foreign countries to share foreign bank accounts of U.S. citizens with U.S. tax authorities. But the reciprocity is not in place for the U.S. with other foreign countries. So, you know, EU lawmakers have pointed out for years that this is extremely unfair and and imbalanced. So that's another sort of political reasoning behind, you know, who gets on the list and, and who doesn't. Other sources told us that it just wouldn't be a good look for the EU to put the U.S. on the blacklist because the U.S. is considered an ally. And so they need to be able to work together on other high-level political issues. But really, just the reasons, they go on and on. All right, so, so where does the blacklist stand today? Are we expecting to see any additional changes or revisions to it? Well, currently, the Code of Conduct Group is actually in the midst of discussing whether to reform the scope of its mandate. As I mentioned earlier, the Code of Conduct Group is the basically the high-level political group in the council that works on all aspects of the EU blacklist. And the Code of Conduct Group was established in 1997 as basically, you know, the EU group that works on stopping harmful tax practices that threaten the EU's revenues, basically. So currently, discussions are ongoing within the council. According to EU Tax Commissioner Paolo Gentiloni, there is a minority of uh, member states in the council that currently oppose reforming any bit of the Code of Conduct's mandate, but he believes that they're making a bit more progress with the help of the Slovenian EU Council presidency in getting those member states to sort of, you know, agree to revise the mandate. So that revision would include a new approach to assessing harmful tax practices. You know, the Code of Conduct Group has been discussing whether to screen jurisdictions based on three criteria, whether a measure leads to double non-taxation or tax relief, whether it substantially influences the place of residence of economic activity, and whether there is a cause and effect link between those first two criteria. The group's also discussing reviewing the geographical scope of the listing criteria so that the EU could actually screen more countries to consider, including on the blacklist. Additionally, the group is also discussing a process that would effectively harmonize protective measures against jurisdictions on the EU blacklist, and it would add actually add stricter measures to implore jurisdictions to change their harmful tax regimes. They're also trying to just kind of gather more harmful tax practices under the scope of the blacklist criteria so that, you know, there aren't jurisdictions that basically escape the listing criteria while providing that same sort of opportunity for tax avoidance or, in some cases, even tax evasion. All right. Well, Sarah, this has been fascinating. For listeners who are interested in reading Sarah's recent article about this EU tax haven blacklist, you can check a link in our show notes. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. 
In Tax Notes Federal, Lawrence Axelrod explores the rules regarding corporate and partnership basis shifts, and he explains how taxpayers have exploited these rules to their advantage. Daniel Higgins-Green and Stanley Veliotis investigate how major regulatory and legislative changes over the past three decades have affected the competitive market for tax services between large U.S. law firms and accounting firms. In Tax Note State, Veronica Caputo and Jason Wade summarize and compare the elective pass-through entity tax laws enacted in Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Jennifer Karpchuk and Jared Martin explore the state and local tax considerations in bankruptcy. In Tax Notes International, Sunny Kishore Balani examines the problem of space debris and proposes the use of a Peguvian tax administered by an international organization to address the growing risks it poses. Franz Vanis Tendale reflects on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and considers its consequences on international tax policy. In Featured Analysis, Robert Goulder argues the best way to modify the guilty regime is to strengthen it so that subpart F becomes unnecessary. And on the opinions page, Robert Goulder and Reuven Aviona discuss the potential issues in the latest international tax proposals spearheaded by Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. For the last few months, frequent guest of the podcast, Tax Notes legal reporter Ryan Finley, and I have been working on something special. And now we're ready to show it to everyone. We designed the Tax Notes Transfer Pricing Center as a one-stop shop for transfer pricing news, rules, and guidance from the OECD, US, UN, and around the world. On the OECD page, you'll find a comprehensive topic index that will take you directly to the OECD guidelines section you're looking for. On the US page, you'll find a digest of important court cases with summaries and links to key documents and related cases. And while you're looking around, check out the OECD US comparison table to quickly reference related topics. And everywhere you go in the Tax Notes Transfer Pricing Center, you'll find convenient links to news and commentary from all of the talented writers here at Tax Notes, Ryan Finley very much included. To check it out today, go to taxnotes.com slash transfer pricing. That's taxnotes.com slash transfer pricing. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.